Welcome to Season 3, Episode 2 of the Open Source Data Podcast. This is your producer, Audra Montenegro, and I'm here with our host, Sam Ramji. Hi, Sam. Hey, Audra. It's an exciting Episode 2. I am super excited to introduce our next guest of the season, Joseph Jacks, aka JJ to friends like Sam. He's the founder and general partner of OSS Capital, previously was an entrepreneur in residence at Quantum Corporation in support of the Rook Project, which was subsequently donated to the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. He also has been involved with the CNCF since the inception at the board level and various committees and as an advisor. Now run by the CNCF, JJ founded KubeCon, while also founding and building the first enterprise-focused commercial Kubernetes company, Kismatic. Over the next several years, JJ worked at Mesosphere and Stratius, Tibco Software, and Talend in various sales, engineering, product, and strategy capacities. JJ is also the founder of the Open Core Summit, the COSS Ecosystem Conference, and we'll get into what COSS stands for later. This event is a vendor-neutral community bringing together cloud providers, cost companies, analysts, investors, enterprises, and more. The first Open Core Summit happened in San Francisco in 2019 with nearly 1,000 attendees, and the second produced online in late 2020 with over 13,000 attendees. Wow. But before we get started, I'd like to ask you, Sam, what are you most excited for us to learn from JJ today? JJ is a voracious student of what's happening in the industry. He makes bets behind what he learns uh, with open source capital. I'm really excited to hear him talk about open source data business models and how the commercial model for open source has shown up in the data ecosystem. We've talked to open source founders on prior seasons of the podcast, and I'd love to see what JJ has to say about open core and open source data. All right, let's get started. Welcome, Joseph. Thank you so much, Sam. It's a, a huge privilege and um, really excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited about this conversation. So we like to start each episode ask, what does open source data mean to you? This is a really interesting question. And I, I have a point of view about open source in general that maybe is worth explaining in 10 seconds or so, which is most people historically think of open source as only referring to software source code. And I really think open source is applicable to kind of everything and included within everything is, of course, data. And so if you think of open source, for me, it's a framework to assign a set of very well-defined rights to anyone for using a given technology. And all that sounds pretty abstract, but I think the word technology is the one thing that you have to get clarity on. So what does technology really mean? And I think if you can kind of understand that, then you can understand what open source is about. So it's really about removing discrimination and giving people really very permissive rights to access technology, to modify it, to use it, and really to commercialize it if they want in any capacity at any time. That's essentially what open source is about. So if you apply that to software source code, we have a lot of licenses for that. And there's different you know, kind of nuanced trade-offs with this word permissiveness. In the world of data, though, it's very interesting. If you apply the same type of concept to data, a lot of really fascinating things can happen. I know that's a big focus and, and passion area for you and something that I'm still really learning about. But another area you could apply open source to is physical world, like the world of things, open source hardware, open source devices, open, open source, you know, maybe even open source biology. In other words, physical things that I think open source could also apply to. And that's a super fascinating area. To answer your question, open source data to me could mean if you have a given piece of data that's open source beyond just being creative commons, it means that the data can be essentially modified, distributed, 
it can be reproduced and, and it can be basically used, meaning, I guess, restated or re-executed in the same way computers execute software source code data or strings of information could be executed perhaps by humans. I think open source data is a really interesting concept, perhaps a little underdefined, far less defined than open source software is. I think it's a great answer because it, it points at, in a way, that this is the open source century. The Economist recently had a cover article on open source intelligence, right? And that the ability of citizens to share intelligence about movements of people and material change is changing our ability to have a secure world because now bad behavior can be revealed really by anyone anywhere and then acted on by people who have the, the necessary wherewithal to go and correct bad behavior. Open source science, as you pointed out, I got an opportunity to talk with the computational biologists at uh, UC San Diego who were responsible for sequencing and visualizing the coronavirus. And the coronavirus was transmitted from China to U.S. laboratories digitally. No copies of the virus were moved, right? It was literally wow. yeah. data that was passed between countries, and it was able to be reproduced and rebuilt within a couple of days just on that information, which helped, of, of course, sequence vaccines within 60 days after that. So the data about the world of things and our ability to share that openly and prevent it from being closed up again is a pretty fascinating field of conversation. So thank you for that. You have been focused on tech for a long time, and there's a lot of things you can do in tech. You have a polymathic ability to bring together many different areas of math, investing, technology. I always learn from you when we get a chance to hang out. How did you get into the tech industry, and what was it that made you want to be an investor in open source software? I never imagined being an investor in open source software at any point in my life. I think it, that sort of very serendipitously happened. And it's, it's a huge privilege and, and very fortunate to be trusted with capital to invest in very high risk projects and startups in the domain that I care a lot about. But I was homeschooled. I didn't go through kind of a conventional elementary, high school or, or graduate school path. I was entirely homeschooled from like the age of two and a half to 16. And then I started working. So when I was going through that homeschooling experience, my, my parents gave me a lot of freedom to kind of explore things and wander. My older brother's a, a self-taught programmer. So a lot of his computer interests and programming passions from just growing up sprinkled onto me, I guess. And I, I got a lot of excitement about just kind of seeing how computers could do exactly what you tell them to do. Most of the time, <laughs> maybe exactly what you don't tell them to do in a lot of cases as well. But like, it's just something that I, I think I randomly developed an affinity for and then most of my career was spent in sales and sales engineering and explaining technical products to, to potential customers, helping them adopt projects and, and technologies and purchase them. I eventually started to get drawn more towards uh, the world of distributed systems and how computer networking works and how to run services and applications on computers. I started selling enterprise middleware software at an early open source company that you mentioned called Talend, which started in France in the mid-aughts and eventually went public. And that was a very formative experience. Kind of randomly learned about open source business models and commercialization of open source technologies there. And then I worked at a couple of other kind of enterprise software middleware companies and then developed just a much stronger attraction to open source in, in general, learned a lot more about the fundamentals. And then I guess through how we met, very lucky to learn about the Kubernetes project super early on when Craig McLucky, the, the, the product co-founder of the project, was kind of hanging out at the Mesosphere offices, which was sort of a, a startup focusing on an academic predecessor to Kubernetes and, and commercializing that, building a business around that. 
So I was just very, very lucky, I think, to learn about Kubernetes and then, yeah, helped in a very small way. I take de minimis credit for the huge movement that Kubernetes has become. I really just attached myself to that big wave early on. I got very lucky. Yeah, you were very early in that. And, you know, Ben Hindman at Mesosphere, he's just a tremendously kind and thoughtful person getting to hang out yeah. with him and Craig McLeod. Ben's awesome. A boom. And I remember I met you when you had co-founded Kismatic with Patrick Riley and you were both just super enthusiastic and endlessly energetic about creating a place for the Kubernetes community to hang out, which is how KubeCon came about. This is kind of the untold story of the origin of KubeCon that I think almost nobody knows. Yeah, KubeCon was actually, believe it or not, Brian Kettleson and Eric St. Martin's idea, co-founders of GopherCon. And they wanted to do it, but they never had time to do it. And yeah, so they were like, hey, we don't have time to do this. Who can do it? And so it was like a conversation between me and Kelsey and Patrick and a handful of other people. And then KubeCon came out at the end of that. And it was sort of an obvious idea. Like, you know, this is a burgeoning, exciting community. There's no real place for people to get together and meet. So yeah, I got very fortunate with that. And to answer your question, I guess the, the journey of becoming an investor, starting a fund was something that kind of necessarily had to happen. There's been a lot of venture capital attention paid to open source all the way back to, you know, Red Hat raised venture capital before going public. And you know, we were talking about Larry Augustin earlier, VA Linux raised venture capital before going public. And there's like a lot of companies going from the mid-90s even to, to now. But what I've, what I've observed as a, a founder and looking at the open source ecosystem in the context of startups in the last five or six years is that like no one really connected the observation of like these companies are very different and they're su super unique as compared to companies that are just fully proprietary that was never connected to an investment thesis in an exclusive way. Like, you know, there's been a lot of investment in a tangential kind of partial, like, yeah, these companies are cool. They have like interesting capital efficiency and that like interesting for lead gen and marketing, but no one had ever attempted to like build a fund focused exclusively on investing in basically, you know, open source companies or commercial open source companies, as we call them. So yeah, sort of stumbled into that as well. Thought it was something that had to exist. And you were yeah, a little more than three years into doing that, but Started OSS Capital in, in late 2018. Got extremely lucky with just the incredible bull market and basically every possible area of growth and equities and you know technology in the last few years. It's been really humbling and, and awesome to have the opportunity to, to do that. So tell us a little bit about the thesis of open source software capital, right? OSS Capital has a particular distinction of what commercial open source software is. Take us for a ride through that for a few minutes because you spent a lot of time like really specifying it. You were early to define that and... The only fund that I'm aware of that focuses exclusively on companies that conform to this model. Yeah, I mean, the thesis really originated with blogging. So I started writing a lot, and the writing helped structure the definition and the scope of what could constitute a thesis. And you've actually enlightened me a lot about how this is really a way of framework of thinking about a lexicon and like introducing language and that sort of thing. And I actually never really perhaps because i'm like so uneducated and like i have so many like knowledge gaps in my head i never really connected the dots on that but it was really blogging and kind of saying let's just string together uh, a set of words that really describe what's happening and then if there's so many words that you have to use to like describe something unique and different you have to give that you have to give that thing a name that's the entire point of language right we use language to describe different things. Even the language is really imprecise and coarse and blurry. We come up with acronyms and pithy buzzwords and things because it makes it easier to communicate between people. So after blogging a lot for a couple of years, really tweeting about, about it and then blogging and kind of did a blog series. And it was very clear that it's not just a type of company 
but it's potentially like a category. If you look at the technology industry, we have SaaS companies and we have e-commerce companies and we have biotech companies and we have electric vehicle companies. And these classifications in the limit, I think in some cases are meaningless, right? Because a lot of the companies are doing the same thing. They're producing a valuable product or service and they're innovating and they have to find product market fit and capital efficiency and stuff. But I think in, in a lot of cases, if you were to classify companies and say, well, let's just focus on that. What happens there is you're just given so much more focus to just go super deep and deeper than anyone else can, because it's just fundamentally more possible to dedicate deeper tension, deeper insights, deeper concentration of resources, if you just focus on one particular area. And, and so that was really the blogging. So I guess to, to state the thesis, it's we think that there's two types of companies, two types of technology companies in the world, essentially. There's ones that are based on a closed core, and I'll explain really what that means on one hand, and there's companies that are based on an open core on the other hand. There's just kind of two types. Closed core companies basically resemble almost every company that you can see, you can imagine, perhaps even including the podcasting app that we're using right now, which is Riverside FM. Companies like Facebook or Google or Amazon or Tesla, basically any technology company where the core technology, the core essence of how they build a product or service is proprietary. That's a closed core company. On the other hand, open core companies are exactly the opposite. And, and there are very few of them relative to closed core companies. It's sort of, maybe it's a, we think of it as a small niche and maybe a few thousand of these companies in existence, maybe 5,000 in the you know, most extreme kind of research project you could run. But open core companies are the opposite. They have an open source, and that means something specific, core technology that serves as the basis for everything else that they do. And it could be a single open source core, or it could be two or three, but that distinction is actually really important. It took me a long time, took me many years to actually realize that, that distinction was possible as a way of kind of delineating a type of company from another type of company, like one type from another type. For the first couple of years of proposing or asserting this thesis, the vast majority of feedback I got was, this is meaningless. This makes no sense. Like open core, every company is open core, right? Because doesn't every company use Linux? Doesn't every company use open source programming languages and so on? And this is actually a really smart kind of way of looking at the fundamentals. But what I was actually trying to point out was, no, it's more of an existential definition, which means if you have a specific technology that literally serves as the basis for the existence, the coexistence of the company, and those are almost two different entities, that's a different kind of company, right? It actually introduces a lot of variables and risk to the company that otherwise wouldn't exist. And, and from there, it actually categorically changes the sort of the species, if you want to use a metaphor, of the company. And so that distinction where you have a core open source technology that if you were to remove it from existence would consequently completely obviate the need for the company to exist. It's, a, it's this really tight relationship, but those two things are separate entities. That's the sort of essence of the definition. And so from an investment fund standpoint, what that unlocks or provides basically is like a way to have an, like a razor sharp investment thesis kind of strategy. So we look at a very, very finite set of inputs into figuring out how to make investment decisions. It's like super clarifying for us to kind of think about how markets change or how markets evolve because we have like a basis for thinking about the origination of something or a company or an idea. And it also changes diligence. Interesting. I was thinking about this the other day, like how venture capital does diligence in the context of 
commercial open source companies is very different than looking at completely proprietary technology. So anyways, that's the thesis in a nutshell. Yeah, the openness is fascinating because it almost reduces some elements of investing to science, right? As opposed to trust me, here's my guesses and it's all opaque. You can say, how many downloads does it have? How many pull requests? How many comments does this has this attracted? It's fascinating. So what I'm hearing you say is that basically every company makes things and sells things. And an open source core company depends on open source both to make things and to sell things. So not just the R&D, but also the go-to-market. And if you broke that, you would no longer have the kind of leverage and scaling that we see HashiCorp has attained now a 52x multiple in their valuation, which is the same as Snowflake, roughly. So it tells you that Wall Street investors are exceptionally impressed by the durability, the growth of these companies, and the likelihood that they'll continue to grow based on the leverage that they see in that model. Obviously, Snowflake, the darling of closed source, pretty much the closed core example that you might pick. And then HashiCorp being a great example of open core and both can work, but you probably can't cross the streams as they might say in Ghostbusters. Yeah, you have to choose a path early on. And that's what you just said is something I have to clarify very regularly with people because we have a certain degree of philosophical conviction about this thesis, but it is kind of completely independent of ideology or religion, right? Like we, we don't focus on this because we have some particular cult or religious conviction. The, the point of view is that these companies are different. And if you understand them as different and they have these qualitative, I think they have a lot of qualitative advantages in a lot of ways, perhaps in some other ways, they have some disadvantages, but you have to just understand some trade-off. This approach is different and it can actually work at the same scale as fully proprietary technology companies. The other thing that the final kind of clarification would be doesn't obviate the old approach. It doesn't say the fully proprietary approach just simply cannot work. That's far from, from what I'm proposing. And I think we're going to live in a world where both approaches continue to work very effectively for maybe even decades. But what's interesting is it's just a very different approach and you have to kind of understand the trade-offs. What have you seen in the last five years in terms of driving change uh, and trends with commercial open source data companies? Data companies in particular, that's very interesting. I mean, I think what... I've noticed just at a broad kind of level is there's far more appreciation for open source as a viable and acceptable and, you know, attractive way to build a business, like from the very early stages, like investing in open source and creating some open source community or some technology independent of data or not, like that's just been like far more accepted in the investment world and the founder entrepreneurship world. Like it's just it's like a huge, huge move, movement. I think there's some spillover from the Web3 crypto blockchain pick the button world as well, which, by the way, is grounded in almost the identical uh, principles. It's a really interesting area and also dependent on, on open source, right? So the building blocks of, uh, of Web3 are all open. Yeah. I mean, it's really just a, a new banner. It's a new way of describing many of the exact same concepts that go back to free software and open source You know, many decades ago. Decades before the, the Bitcoin paper was released, many of the principles and uh, like a lot of the projects in, in the crypto ecosystem, and I think there's like a massive movement happening there. But in, in open source data in particular, I think that we've seen far more systematic investing and founding of companies at the data infrastructure level, whether it's OLAP, OLTP databases, in-memory databases, graph databases, analytical databases, all kinds of new SQL, no SQL database challengers. I think we're probably going to see five or six 
open source database companies go public in the next couple of years, whether it's, you know, companies like Datastax, Cockroach, Redis, like there's, you know, Neo4j, there's like a long list of these companies that are actually doing really well. They have very high growth businesses. And of course, of course, Couchbase went public quite recently. There's almost a, a way to invert that question and say, is it possible to go public as a non-open source database uh, company anymore? I think it is. I still think it is. And I would go back to your example of Snowflake, where this is a massive business, very grounded in just super targeted Oracle level kind of speeds and feeds competition and cloud-based delivery models with very aggressive uh, go-to-market and sales motion targeting enterprises from the very beginning. And, And I think there's kind of two macro forces happening that are, I would say, equally profound. One is the move to the cloud which is really technology agnostic. It's really a, a delivery mechanism. So you can be open source or not, and you can just deliver the best technology. And the cloud is going to give you such enormous leverage. Then it's really open source. And you could say open source is as disruptive, perhaps more disruptive, because it just unlocks incredible levels of innovation that you really can't find anywhere else. And it also gives you capital efficiency in far more domains than just distribution as compared to proprietary technology. It, it also works, like we've been talking about, I would say equally so. And so I think there's going to be both both fully proprietary uh, database companies succeed in the public markets and open source database companies succeed. I, I'm very biased. I mean, if you you know really cornered me and you're like, hey, which ones are really going to win the biggest in the longest term? I think it's open source data. And I, I believe there's a lot of fundamental reasons for that, but we just have to see how the future plays out. Yeah. And the early returns from your fund show that your thesis is turning out pretty well, right? This idea of open source venture capital. Uh, We've been very fortunate. When you think about this at kind of the next level down, right, if you're doing this in a proprietary way, you have to go out of your way to do a lot of engineering to integrate with everything that your users might want. Whereas something that you learned at Talon, I think, is the magic of open source for integration and interoperability, right? You can get inside a technology, it's permissionless innovation. You can modify your own copy. You can update or contribute your ideas about how an API might be adapted to be able to support a particular query pattern, for example. So when you think about innovators and practitioners, right, their advantages from open source in their data infrastructure, there's a ton about automation. I'd love to hear you um, talk a bit about the interaction between open source systems, the automation opportunity, like, and what, what that means for, for you as an investor? Yeah, I think what m- my mind goes to when you say open source automation and investing is really how consumers care about the leverage that they get from technology. And this is more of like an abstract thing. I mean, we're still seeing so much more automation in business workflows and in the way people get their work done and the way tasks are executed And frankly, even in the way we find products and services to go about our daily lives as humans, whether it's a restaurant or a dentist or looking up someone to uh, fix your car when the car breaks down for some reason or whatever, like trying to connect all of the digital opportunities that give us leverage as humans to our daily lives, I think is dominated by proprietary services. And one of the big things that I think has also been a big narrative and trend, and you pointed out the Economist article recently, where sort of open source is becoming more prominent and understood by society, is, I think, really independent of whether you call it open source or not, consumers at large in society are becoming increasingly aware and sensitive to whether the technology they use can actually be trusted. And I think this word trust is 
often conflated with privacy. And I think that's a really massive mistake. Most people don't really understand the differences between the two. We see Apple billboards constantly saying the iPhone equals privacy when this is a you know, completely vertically integrated proprietary technology that exactly one company in the world controls. And I'm not saying that to disparage or criticize Apple. I'm a very happy Apple customer. I have several Apple products that I use daily. But what I do think is happening is there's a societal recognition that if you use technology to automate some part of your life and um, you use that regularly, you have to be able to trust it. And I think gradually consumers are becoming more and more aware that potentially one of the most effective, and which I believe is the most effective way of checking the trust box is answering the question, is the technology I'm using open source at the core, yes or no? And if the answer is no, I think it's very difficult and a lot harder to achieve the levels of trust that you can if the answer is yes. I come back to uh, Ralph Nader's famous campaign for seatbelts, unsafe at any speed, right? And some of those same philosophical and emotional underpinnings behind open source for consumer rights in, in what you're saying, right? Make sure that you have control and that you have the ability to leave and take your things with you if you need to. Related to this, what, what parallels have you seen in the struggles across the data industry for closed source companies that are leaning towards go, going open source, right? When we think about the closed source versus open source dialectic or competition, what do you see there? Well, I think the biggest challenges that face proprietary data companies in particular, which is kind of the scope of your question, but I think it's also broadly applicable to pretty much any fully proprietary product or service in the technology world where consumers might care about the, the privacy and the control over that technology is really, I, I think it's multifaceted. One dimension that comes up a lot is the pace of innovation. Consumers have to trust that one company will always be able to satisfy the pace of innovation, the new features and the new enhancements and just the, the potential of that technology to be the best technology, they have to trust that one company instead of basically trusting essentially a commons or a collective or the world. And if you really look at that fundamentally, like from first principles, you will always default to using technology where the input to making it better is disaggregated across the world. And, and the, the ways of doing that, I think, are very difficult and are still extremely hard to implement in the context of capitalism. And so that's like a much broader topic. But I think if you look at the most fundamental services we use every day, they were really created in a very collaborative way with a huge amount of input, sometimes created by a single inventor, but where they were shaped and improved by a large group of inputs. Could have been a single company, could have been a handful of people, but I think the open source aspect is really profound for just the pace of innovation. The other thing that I think is a challenge for proprietary data companies in particular is the consumers have to trust how their data is used. They have to trust how their data is stored. Have to have, they have to trust how you know, their data is repurposed and you know, how it can be sold, perhaps. And I think these questions require just degrees of trust that are only just now starting to become societally appreciated where you, know, you see Senate hearings constantly, or you're seeing data breaches, or you're seeing misrepresentations and secret backdoor deals between uh, trillion-dollar tech company CEOs. And I'm not trying to sort of say, we can't trust 
the multinationals and the big tech companies, obviously, I think our lives have become just immeasurably abundant because of the leverage we've gotten from companies like Microsoft and Apple and Google and Facebook. But what I do think are the, the primary challenges are grounded in how consumers, going back to what we were saying before, trust how the data that they produce is used, whether that is the only way monetization can occur. One open source data topic I think that might be really relevant over time is instead of monetizing the data, how can you monetize the experience? Historically, the only way you could build an enormous business and monetize your technology was if you gave away the technology and then you just capture the data and monetize the data. It sounds very ironic, actually. Google, give away the technology, monetize the data. Facebook, give away the technology, monetize the data. What's actually super interesting with commercial open source companies is they're also giving away the technology, but instead of monetizing the data, they have to monetize the experience. They have to monetize the differentiated leverage that the technology can provide to the consumer instead of having really only one option, which is you're harvesting huge amounts of data and then you have to monetize it. So I don't really have any religion about what the ultimate business model is going to be or the the, the evolution of business models. But I think the days of monetizing data, whether it's through advertising or through recommendation engines or just proprietary analytics and whatever machine learning things we can come up with that rely on huge amounts of data, I, I think that those days will eventually come to an end and we'll have to find better business models that are more inclusive. Yeah, to your point, it's so much easier to build trust when you say, hey, if you want to stop using my software, that's fine. You don't. You can just stop paying me. You can fire me at any time if you're not happy with the experience that I'm charging you for. That's powerful. You've done a lot and you've seen a lot in terms of infrastructure applications of open source. We pretty much understand how operating systems, how databases, how open source networking works. Crossplane is another project and company that you've gotten involved in. So all of these really nerdy things that I love, right, that make my the propeller on my propeller hat spin. These are well-trodden ground for open source, but... Uh, you're seeing open source become more relevant in higher layers of the stack, I think, based on conversations we've had. So can you talk a bit about that? What are you, what are you seeing? What's novel there? And how is that starting to you know, grow up towards the consumer level? Yeah, I've been incredibly surprised and really almost shocked to see the rate of acceleration towards building and developing open source applications by founders, by the industry, and just by tinkerers and developers at large. I mean, I think if you look at the top 100 SaaS applications, invariably, and if you run a small research project, and we're, we're doing some work here and we're publishing some data on this, but you, you'll find open source alternatives for pretty much every major proprietary SaaS application. I mean, I'm seeing tweets about this, and it's pretty amazing like how um, not only are these applications getting built, but in a lot of cases, there's a huge amount of adoption and traction. You know, I'll put a, a very selfish promotion out there for Cal.com, which is like an open source Calendly. This is a calendar scheduling application. And, you know, it's like really like an API for your calendar, for your life. And it's growing incredibly fast and has a huge amount of adoption. And there's applications out there that are open source alternatives to Shopify and to Airtable and to Notion. One of the biggest things is you see this huge new market created in proprietary SaaS, there's a massive amount of growth. But then invariably, just a year or two after that, you see open source alternatives popping up where people really want control, like the same thing we've been talking about. They want control over the technology. They want to be able to trust that they can influence the rate of improvement themselves of the technology. 
and they want permissiveness to have the flexibility to run that technology wherever they like, however they like, and perhaps even to commercialize it themselves if they want to. And so I think that's like a, a really fascinating movement. I don't really know how this is going to connect to the consumers and the end users really interacting with those applications, but I think it's just going to accelerate more appreciation of really non-technical, non-programmer um, end users for how exciting and how empowering it can be to use an application that you can actually have control over if you want it to. So yeah, that's I think that's the biggest change. Like you were saying, in the last 10, 20 years, most of the activity and innovation and, and movement and, and open source in the context of business and, and capitalism and, and, and markets has been infrastructure stuff, you know, middleware, AI, databases, integration, and so forth. But we're really starting to now see it at the application layer, which is the largest you know, part of the software industry where you have these three-letter acronyms, whether it's a CRM or an ERP. We're headed in that direction. And we've had some starts and stops over the last 20 years with companies like Sugar CRM and others in the last 15, 20 years, um, where it was like felt that as though this could happen. But now I think we're really starting to see a second wave attempt of that. And it's going to be really interesting to see how the next five, 10 years play out. It's fascinating, right? Open source applications for consumers are starting to show up in interesting ways, like with NoCodeDB, right? Challenging Airtable. That's that's a low-code, no-code environment. And it, it's kind of a proof point that there's no area of software that's immune to open source disruption or or success. And on, a, on the flip side, you look at companies like Plaid, which effectively is, uh, is, is an open source philosophy, right? Opening up protocols, reverse engineering to be able to give people access to multiple backends that didn't want to interoperate. So open source has often been a nice can opener, right? To break into whether it's Microsoft protocols or Google protocols or anything else. We're going to come into the end of our episode. So I want to ask you a final question, which is what's one piece of advice that you would give to people who want to start an open source venture? I would say always pay attention to whether you have a very strong amount of passion and personal traction to that problem space. There's a huge amount of venture capital getting deployed into it. Open source companies raised $20 billion in capital last year, which you know is truly mind-blowing compared to 2020. That number grew by 600%. But even at that level, it's only 4% of the total venture capital dollars deployed in 2021, which exceeded $600 billion. So I think we're still very early. But the biggest piece of advice I would say is do something that you have deep, authentic passion about. And the reason for that is, frankly, I think it's a lot harder to build an open source company and to build a business around an open source technology. Your demands and uh, pressure for excellence really are just extrapolated out uh, by orders of magnitude potentially in a lot of cases because you have this high level of transparency. And so you have to be ready for that just have a deep amount of passion, authenticity, and really know that's the case because building any kind of startup is just extremely hard and you don't want to go into something with a contrived kind of approach. That's awesome advice. JD, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. It's an amazing conversation as always. And congratulations on the uh, phenomenal success that you've had with OSS Capital. Thesis is clearly playing out really well for you. Thank you so much, Sam. It's a real privilege and it's really great to have this conversation with you as well. What an exciting episode. This is your producer, Audra Montenegro, and we're going to take a minute for Sam and me to debrief with our takeaways. With that, what stood out in the conversation for you, Sam? 
JJ is just such a curious character. And I think his focus on finding new language to describe this pattern that he's seeing is really exciting, right? Language discovery is never precise and formulating open core is different from how many folks talked about open core a decade and two decades ago. He's really trying to point at this idea that open source is the go-to-market engine, and it's also the R&D engine, and it's also the community engine. So we'll figure out better language for that. But the phenomenon he's targeting is the change that we see in the industry. Yeah. And I love how he points out that open source changes the species of a company, as well as the level of trust it brings with the tools that we choose to use. Also, it'd be great to have JJ on the show on a panel with the other KubeCon founders like he suggested. But until then, thanks to the audience for joining us today. And if you like us, please give the podcast a five-star rating on your favorite platform and stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks again for listening. 